Sci-Fi for Me presents Jason Hunt and Timothy Harvey. This is the H2O Podcast. I, I am, I am, I know, I'm going to have to finally break down and move the towers, I think, probably this week. Drag him Just kicking and screaming into well, the 20th century. The problem, the problem is that... that Steam is have... no longer the only way to power things, Jason. <laughs> Well, the problem is okay. So uh, a few weeks ago, I uh, I got hired to stream a wedding, and as part of that, the the idea here was yeah, okay. We need to make sure that we've got something that actually is going to work, and so uh, as part of as part of the work expenses, I got a new tower. Well, that tower has been sitting over here because I've been slowly migrating software over to it because everything is on this tower over here that's 13 years old. And I'm used to this tower that's 13 years old. And the tower that's 13 years old is used to me. And we... And this, we fear change. We, well, it's not really so much that I fear change. It's that I'm just resistant to it because <laughs> it's a hassle. It is a hassle... To change things, it's like my dad says, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And for the most part, it ain't broke. Except. Except when it, is. when it is. And the gremlins decide that they want to play, and it causes problems. Now, kids at home, if you remember the, you know, the word gremlins there. Now, if you want to go back through our catalog of videos and find the number of times... When the gremlins have been at work. <laughs> There's a few. There's a few. We might have enough that we can make a promo out of it. I'm just saying that when it comes... The only reason they did not come to us for the new gremlin series <laughs> is because it's animated. If they wanted physical gremlins, they're all here. They're all here. Yes, I. yes, they are. So, anyway, kicking is, and screaming into the digital age. Well, if if you're if if you're going to to address people, it's it's number four. It's not you have to turn it on at the board. Anyway, the the idea that the, uh, never mind. Okay, so so. Welcome to the H2O Podcast, everyone. My name is Jason Hunt. And I'm Timothy Harvey. And it is one of those things where, typical of the scenario, when we have everything deciding it's going to cooperate, suddenly then it doesn't. And I was in the midst of making sure that all the cameras were going to work. And for a brief moment, they were. And then the bump shot, the one, the one that's back over on the other side mm -hmm. of the room that gives us this nice wide shot, you can see the whole studio, 
That one suddenly decided not to work. And as I'm, I'm futzing with that one and pulling out the cable and putting it back in and trying to reconnect it, then the whole thing just decided, I'm just going to kind of sit here. So I had to reboot the computer. And it's frustrating to a certain extent because I know the machine can do what I want it to do because I've told it to do what I want it to do and it's done what I want it to do more than once. So it knows how to do what I want it to do. Have you ever seen Old Yeller? <laughs> Just saying. You don't want to say goodbye, but... Well, it's... Part of it, part of it is the hassle of moving everything over. Sure. Um, the other thing is all of the USB ports that are on this tower that are not on. Oh, sure. Any no. other machine. Yeah, no. I, I when I so when I moved from my older Mac to my current Mac, one of the things I found very very annoying was that there are two fewer USB ports on mm -hmm. the back of. And I realize there's there are other ports on the back that have very that have that have value. I mean, there's you know, but yeah, they're not any ones that you I have. Use. Sixteen yeah. external hard drives. There's a reason for this. Like yeah. I collect them like baseball cards. Well, and I had uh, to install a USB port, an extra yep. uh, thing in the slot, so I could get four more. Mm -hmm. So I've got, I don't know, let's see, four, eight, I've probably got 16 USB ports on that tower. And not that many on all the rest of them. Now, the, right. new, the new tower has, what do we count, 12? And two of them are the micro-C USB sure, yeah. ports, which I'm thinking, I don't have any use for those. Give me a regular USB port. So everybody likes to think they know what's best for us. This is why they make the USB. This, this is why they make USB hubs. Well, the problem with that is I can't run all the cameras through a hub hmm. because if because all of these cameras being on USB cables, if they go into the hub, then the software sees one right, camera, sure. and, it, and and so you know I've got to have each one of them plugged in at a different port. Yeah. So there's there's always something. Right, right. There's always something. So, but that's not what we're talking about. Nonetheless, tonight. and even so. Yes. Aren't you talking about adaptations or adapting? We, uh, uh, well, it's a different kind of adaptation. Yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm. I don't like having to adapt, but that's not what we're talking about. <laughs> so, you may or may not have heard, but this last week saw the release. <clears throat> of a 10-hour adaptation of Neil Gaiman's Sandman. Right, the, the, first, the first three um, arcs of the comic were released on audio. Fantastic cast. Um, really, really high-quality adaptation. I, I, I pre-ordered. It came out on tax day. It was just like, at 12.01 in the morning, my phone went, well, and Brave New World is out now. And too, Brave New World Peacock is out. Launched last week. And so. well, and and we also have. So you have something like um, Sandman, Brave New World. You've got a, this is the Sandman TV show mm -hmm. is going forward. Uh, Neil Gaiman discussed that, and it talks about it, the differences between the TV show and what the comic has had. And one of the things that you see all the time, and this is something that fans 
struggle with, I think, um, for, for good reasons and bad, which is when someone adapts a comic to TV or to film, mm-hmm. a novel to film, we've got Dune coming out, we've got, you know, this new spate of Stephen King adaptations coming out, et cetera, et cetera. So many of these things run into the, the trans, there's almost like translation error in between yeah. the source material and what makes it to the, the screen. And that can happen from novel to comic or TV to comic, um, you know, movie to comic. It, it doesn't, it's not, you know, necessarily from the printed to the moving, um, the static to the motion. That's not necessarily the, what, what happens. Um, sometimes you can have a really beautiful adaptation of a film or a film that's a great adaptation that has almost nothing to do with the comic or the, um, as an example, Blade Runner. Blade Runner is not an adaptation of Do Android's Dream of Electronic Sheep. It has some story elements, but they are not the same thing. They are radically different. Well, and you can go the other way, too, with novelizations. Mm -hmm. Sometimes the novelization is much different from the movie because you get... The the writer of the novelization gets a script, mm-hmm. and they have to make up all of the things that are part of that story, without having to without being able to see any footage because it hasn't been shot yet. I will and I will so argue. Create, sometimes it ends up being a better story. I will argue to my dying day that the novel of Star Trek Five is great. Yeah, it is. It, I'm, I don't know about great, but it is better than the film. Well, yeah. Admittedly, it's a low bar, but the novel—it's a—it is a—it is a very interesting Star Trek novel. If Shatner had been able to do what he wanted to do in the third act, it would, it would be a better. Well, film. it would be a better film. But the problem with Star Trek V, at the end of the day, is that William Shatner is a TV director, mm-hmm. and you can—if you look at the framing. If you look at the way things are shot in Star Trek V, it's a t- it's it's nineteen seventies and eighties television visual sensibility. Although I do like the fact that he's got the camera moving when people are not there. There's something about that that I think because to hear his commentary on it. One of the things that he does as far as uh, camera move and, and blocking of actors and whatnot is there always needs to be some kind of energy. Mm-hmm. <coughs> Excuse me. And if the actors are moving, that's one type. And if everybody's standing still, like you kind of do when you're on the bridge of a starship, you're just not going anywhere. If the camera continues to move, sure. then it you still have something there as part of that visual kinetic energy. And I like that idea. Oh, I, I agree. The There is a very, very, very good fan edit out there, and I can't remember who did it, um, where a guy basically cut Star Trek V like a TV, Star Trek TV episodes. Yeah. With the credits and the music, and he did all this. And it the, it works so much better as a, as a TV as episodes of a TV show, yeah, because uh, it's broken into, and you can find the places where you can basically break it into. Now, is there a CG correction on how many decks 
are in the turbo. I don't believe so. <laughs> um, but that's uh, the one thing that's always bugged me about that film more than anything else. That there are not more than 90, anything more else. More than anything else, there are not ninety something decks <laughs> on the Enterprise. That has well. always just annoyed the heck out of me because Shatner, of all people, should know better. Well, you would think, but so so one of the things that that a lot of people have been pointing out, uh, and I would agree, the the biggest criticism that we're getting for uh, I've I've looked at probably a dozen. Um, uh, reviews of the new Sandman audio. Right. You know, people are they're praising the voice work. They're they're you know the the score. The uh, there's a little bit of of you know Neil Gaiman's voice is a little too um, mellow for some of the narration. It's he's he's a little too deadpan. <laughs> that people think that maybe it's but at the same time it's like. What do you want of a narrator? Do you want a narrator who's like, and then, you know, well, the storm blew up. Neil Gaiman. Yeah, I mean, well, Neil Gaiman doesn't doesn't his have voice all is that like this, and yeah. he talks like this, and this is Neil Gaiman's voice, and it's that level kind of thing, and that, and so on. But I can I can see their point. But the biggest issue that people tend to raise, and I and I would agree with, is that it is a very much a product of the eighties, hmm. and. And there's pros and cons to this, okay? Because it was a product of the 80s. Sure. Uh, and it was a uh, a lot of things that were cutting edge in eighty in the 80s and storytelling. Some of the things that happened in the in the in the story, some of the the metaphysics, some of the ways characters were treated, some of the ways that, that certain things were talked about were in the eighties, Gaiman was treading new ground. He was pushing boundaries. Right. And um, in 2020, it feels a little dated sometimes. Hmm. And it's something you don't notice all the time. But every now and again, something will happen. And you'll go, yeah, that was the 80s. <laughs> and and it's not and that's I mean like I said I I loved it I actually thought it was I thought it was extremely well done it's it's, it's incredibly it's an incredibly faithful adaptation the biggest downside of an audiobook is that one of the greatest upsides of the Sandman series was the amazing artwork that accompanied oh, sure. it uh, the McKeon covers you can't reproduce those in audio you know you can't reproduce the the visuals but and so you know but you know that going in with an audio adaptation if you you know if, you're you're letting your mind do the heavy lifting, but it's an it's a risk with something that you when you adapt something that if it's of a time and place, how do you bring that into the into the current day? How do you make it fresh for an audience? Well, and with the comic book, the the assumption is that I would think the assumption would be that most of the people who are getting the audio book are familiar with the comic book. Sure. And so it's easier to, to visualize those kinds of things where, you know, if, I, if I'm reading, a, if I'm listening to a Star Trek novel, mm -hmm. say, for example, you know, it's fairly easy that you're going to visualize William Shatner as Jim Kirk. And, and you know what the Enterprise looks like. You know what the Enterprise looks like. Right. Yeah, yeah. You, you're familiar with all of that. Mm -hmm. uh, but I would say, yeah, you're, you're and, and people who don't know anything about the Sandman, they don't have those visuals. They're not missing them. They're not missing them, uh, but I think there there's moments that don't necessarily translate well. There's a 
there's a character called the Corinthian, uh, and he is an spoiler alert for <laughs> decades old comic book. Um, sometimes I feel old, uh, but he's he's a nightmare. He was a, he was a nightmare created uh, to be um, a reflection of mankind's deepest nastiness. And when the Lord of Dreams is captured by a not terribly wise sorcerer and is trapped for 70 years, they're going after his sister. It would have been much, much worse if they'd gotten his sister. Mm. Uh, but uh, the Corinthian and several other dreams escape into the world. And the Corinthian is the inspiration for America's serial killers. So that that sort of you know, from from the twentieth century, the sort of the growth of the serial killer idea in America and, right. and these it's Corinthian. And the Corinthian is in a very is an attractive man in sunglasses, pleasant smile, always polite. Um, but when he takes off his sunglasses, he doesn't have eyes. He has mouths with very sharp teeth. Mm. And a penchant for eyeballs. There's some very visual things happening here that you lose a little bit of the power when someone goes, My God, your eyes. They're little mouths with teeth. Little mouths. Yeah. And of course, they, they say it in a way which is actually much better written than that, particularly yeah, than you and I saying it like that. But I mean, it's, it does lose some of the visual power. Um, and there's some, of the, but there's some moments in there. And they, but they do a good job of, of finding the. You know, the sound design, mm. um, the narration when it's necessary, some some moments of, you know, look at this wonderful space we are in kind of things happen. But sure. it, it's, it's crafted well. It's a very well-crafted... The production team behind it know what they're doing. I ran into that particular issue when we adapted The Lone Ranger mm. as a, a staged reading radio play mm -hmm. where... We had the scripts for the television show, the first, I think we got the first five episodes, mm -hmm. the shooting scripts, and you have the the direction for what the characters are doing in the script, and of course, being the TV show, you see right. what happens. You see the ambush, you see, you know, riding the horse around, da -da 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 -da, right? So I had to figure out between the Clayton Moore series episodes and going back to the original radio show that I had on tape, mm -hmm. where, what do I pull in order to have the narrator be able to fill in the gaps? Because I had the origin story, which is the first three episodes of the series. Right. But the next two scripts that I got... I don't have a radio version of it. So I'm having to rely on that as a reference and then looking at those scripts saying, okay, well, how do I describe this action that's happening on screen using only the voice of the narrator right. and some music and some sound effects? And it's not not easy to do sometimes. depending Because, no. it, well, I mean, everybody knows what a horse is. Mm -hmm. But, like you're saying, you know, mouths in place of eyes and you know, that is nightmare fuel stuff sometimes you've got to be able to find that way of describing yeah. it and still be organic to the story that's right. the other thing that's, that like, is a real challenge yeah you know 
Let us walk into this cathedral. Oh, look at that stained glass window yeah. on the right-hand side, 20 feet up off the ground. Well, you and, can't and, do that. No, you can't. I mean, and you can get away with it with some degree in the narration. It's like, you know, and of course, again, think, think Neil Gaiman's very even tones. As mm. they walked into the room, they looked up, they looked above them to see the sky. You know, there, there was in fact no, no roof and the yeah. sky was, you know, you can get these kind of things to it. But at the same time, yeah, it's a real challenge. And then sometimes you run into the idea that, for example, you know, we've got this audio production of, of Sandman, which is very much faithful, but this product of the 80s, this feeling like, you know, this is, in fact, a good chunk of the story takes place in the late 80s and, and it's explicitly yeah. part of it. Now, the new series, the TV series, isn't going to be set in the 80s. It's going to be set now. It's going to be set in the current year. And that's going to have... And it's one of the things he's discussing is that in the writing, it has repercussions. It changes how you address these characters. It changes how you address parts of the storyline. While we, for example, the whole serial killer thing, I mean, it's that revolves around a convention. Mm. It's a... It's a, it's a serial convention. Okay. About 80 or 90 serial killers all getting together to have a convention at a, at a hotel. I mean, and but at the same time, if you think back to the 1980s, that has a nightmare fuel f power to it that it doesn't in 2020. To a point. I yeah. mean, it's it's a it's a terrifying idea, but the '80s it was a much stronger thing in terms of the idea. The, the we're not as afraid of serial killers now. We know more about them. We know that in the real world, while they're great characters, villains in in fiction, mm -hmm. in the real world, most serial killers a don't have that many victims. Uh, b most most of the ones who to have like I killed ninety people. Actually, no, you didn't. You know, they've they've. You know, there's a lot of bragging that goes into it, and yeah. that, and these, and these, they're not Hannibal Lecter. Most of them are just not that bright, and so it's. I, mean, I, we, I would say the equivalent, the gloss is off. Yeah, I would say killer. the equivalent, the modern day equivalent, would probably be the mass shooter. In terms of the idea of something that is unpredictable and terrifying and very much a danger. I'd say the danger is still there. Random. I think I'd say the the, and I I, I hate in terms that. of invoking fear. And yeah, that, well, that no, I, I, I think unfortunately we're also a little more used to it, which I think is is a, there might be some of that kind of a horrible thing in itself, but not kind of it is a horrible thing. But no, I mean, so there's there's things that that change and how you know um, if for there were there were gay and lesbian and transgender characters in in the Sandman in the eighties. And that was at the time it was like groundbreaking, mm. um, and it's not now. So how do you deal? How do you deal with characters who, you know? And that's 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 been a criticism some folks have had is that in being faithful to what was at the time, something that was you know other writers weren't doing in their comics. Right. And now it's like okay, but we wouldn't say that about that character now because. But it's like, but yeah, but the fact that he was able to say that in 1986 or 87 or 88, that was a big deal. Now, it's like, well, why would you, you know, it's like, well, you can say this now. 
or you can do this now, or you can, you know, you can, you can address these characters in different ways and still remain faithful. Now, of course, obviously, he's involved with the adaptation. Right. He's doing the writing. Fans can dislike the end result, but it's not going to be because somebody, you know, somebody missed, you know, didn't understand Gaiman's vision. Well, and that's always the, the thing that you look at. You, you mentioned Stephen King. You know, the adaptations of his work have always been hit and miss. Because people either get it and they and they absolutely understand the material, mm-hmm. or they don't. There's no in between. There's no gray. Well, he kind of got it, kind of didn't. Well, except is, maybe The Shining. King is also an interesting case in the fact that he's acknowledged he's not a good screenwriter. Mm-hmm. He's a great novelist, but he wrote Maximum Overdrive. Now, admittedly. There was a whole lot of cocaine going on, and he's aware of this, and he's not, and he's the first person to acknowledge it. Um, but I mean, he, the simple fact of the matter is, is that his strengths do not lie in screenwriting. Yeah. These are different art forms. You know, being a novelist and being a screenwriter are different beasts. Some people can do both. Most people can't. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, I think that, and you can even have two different versions of a film. Um, so there's two different versions of The Shining. There's the movie that everybody knows about, yep. and there was the miniseries. And King loves the miniseries. And the miniseries was actually shot at the Stanley Hotel, where he wrote the the original story. And it's much more faithful to the novel. Yeah. Um, and King is a is on record of saying that he's not a fan of Stanley Kubrick's version at all, which is very very different than the novel. But the more faithful adaptation, even though, and we've argued on this show a few times that giving things more time to breathe is a good idea, um, it's a little too sluggish. Yeah. It doesn't, it doesn't come on. Now, King loves it, and that's fine. But you get to something like um, Darabon's The Mist. Um, it's a novella. It's a relatively short novella. Um, there are characters that are combined. There's characters that don't exist in the novella. Things quite a bit has changed. The ending is a significant difference. Um, and I think horror works a little bit better when it gets when it's adapting, um, because a lot of horror isn't say necessarily time specific. I mean, if it's a period piece, obviously. Sure. But if film, you know, you could if you did a modern version of The Shining, it it, it doesn't The Shining doesn't need to be in. 1970s, 1980s, it doesn't need, it could be any decade. Right. Pet Cemetery could be in any decade. Halloween, the Halloween movies, clearly can be at any time they, you know, the, the, the trick is, is that they got to be somewhere around October 31st. You know, that's, that's sure. kind of the thing. You know, a Friday 13th film needs to be somewhere, I don't know, on a Friday, <laughs> between the, you know, between the, the, the 12th and the 14th. I, that's, that's one of the things that, uh, when when you get into adaptations of works and the scribe awards uh, mm-hmm. were just announced here last week the 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 media tie-in mm-hmm. uh, work where you have to be faithful on the one hand and on the other hand <clears throat> either <coughs> Excuse me. Either fill in the blanks if you're doing a novelization of the movie, right? Or you have to take something that's in the book 
and render it as a visual of some sort and get the story told within a limited amount of time. Yeah. Because you have this novel that's four or five, six hundred pages and you have two hours to make the movie and a lot of it's not going to make it in. Witness Dune. I mean, we're talking, we've got this. Now, admittedly, we're hearing that this this film is meant to be the first of not just one film, but it's designed to stand on its own. Yeah. So, if the, so it's if, part one, but it's one. If 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 part two never happens, you can walk and get to the end of this story and go, aha, it's got a beginning, a middle, and an end. It's not a cliffhanger, you know. And then and there's places in the novel I think you could probably do that. Yeah. Probably. I think I think um my 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 logical place to put that is when Paul becomes leader of the Fremen. Spoiler alert. Um yeah, and I then so that. you could basically have that be the. Could you get there in two hours, two and a half hours? <sighs> See, that's my concern. Yeah, because there's the book. There's so much. There's so yeah. much. And admittedly, I think that in 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 all fairness, anybody expecting an a, an adaptation to get the full depth and it not be a ten hour miniseries is just. You're going to have to make sacrifices. You're going to have to make things go away. You're going to have to have things that fall out. And you look at when you look at something like David Lynch's version, whether the version that was in theaters or the cut that, you know, the, the three-hour cut that's out there, um, the fact is he hits the big points. Mm-hmm. But they also made some very distinct decisions to simplify certain parts of the story that alienated a lot of fans. Um, and the people who just watched the movie did not have any idea that the weirding modules were not in the book. And have not, it's like, what is Sonic? What is Sonic weapons? What, is, what are we talking about? The, the, the people who love the book are like, what is this? You know, and you get to the end and it's just like, but at the same time, they made decisions because they only had so much time. Right. And some of that you have to do, like I said, you, when you're trying to translate narrative, you know, narration, description, long passages of prose mm-hmm. into a visual of some sort. Sometimes you have to take shortcuts. Sometimes yeah. you have to do it a different way mm-hmm. because of the change of medium. Right. And, you know, well, and we ran into that when we adapted Statement of Randolph Carter. Sure. For example, where, and we've talked about this before, the, the narration of Randolph Carter is just Randolph Carter. Right. And he's clearly talking to someone, but there's no there's no dialogue. There's no interaction. There's no descriptive of anything about who he's there with. And we are far from the only people who have run into this problem with adapting Lovecraft. Yeah. So we had to be, I we had to extrapolate. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, who's he talking to? What's he responding to? And and create that since we were since we're filming the scene, he's got to be interacting with somebody. Okay, well, who's there? Well, the obvious idea is that it's the police. Mhm. So that's where all of that came from, and of course we get two detectives because you got to bounce back and forth. Sure, right. Bad cop, uh, and and we had, you know, 
Yoda and Superman. You got to put them both in exactly. there. Exactly. I mean, come on. So it was it was one of those things. And for me, the challenge is extrapolating that dialogue on the one hand and staying faithful to the Lovecraft text as well because the language is not just you know regular english i mean right. it's it's lovecraft and so you got to you got to make sure that the detectives sound like carter you know the use of language and the word choice and, and the, for and good the and for ill yeah, lovecraft's language is very much a character in its own right and yet strangely of course the, the the novella that is in fact the most cinematic and the most designed to be or or not designed but definitely is the one that would lends itself the best to the idea of a uh, a film adaptation is the one we can't get off the ground yeah. which is Guillermo del Toro's uh, at the Mountains of Madness. Uh, Robert in the chat says that my mic is not working apparently. You want to take a look there? It's the I think it's the first one that should be on. I'm seeing LEDs bouncing around over there. The LEDs are bouncing, but like just to number two. Okay, um, let's let's spin me up just a little bit. And you said your number one. Yeah, I believe so. Yeah, test one, two, three, one, two, three. How is that? Is that any better? Well, when you hit better, you jumped up. To four. Okay. Well, what does it look like over on that on that control panel there? This because one? if that one's bouncing into into yellow, you're then not. we should. It's not. Okay. Yeah, you're 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 still down. You're at least five below where the yellow starts. Okay. Well, let's uh, let's slide that one up just a little bit too. So. Right here. Yeah. Okay. Live television, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you, Robert. Uh, it, it's it's hard for me because it went, and this is something that Mrs. Boss and I have talked about before. She's like, you're you're always looking around and looking at all these different things. I'm looking at. It. I was like, well, yeah, I'm looking at three cameras. I'm looking at the computers. I'm looking at the LED readouts. I'm looking at the controls, and I'm looking at chat. I'm like, yeah, I'm 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 armchair quarterbacking at the same time I'm hosting, and I was like, no, no, wait, oh, wait, no. Hit that button. No, over there. So, yeah. So, yes. Yes. Um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's a real it's a real question, as you know, and, and, and you understand the concerns. And, of course, when now that we're seeing these adaptations that have become big deals, Game of Thrones, kind of a big deal. Yes. Did you, did you see, did you see uh, uh, George R. R. Martin said... The the new book fixes the ending of the TV series. <laughs> My, no, he's he, apparently earlier earlier in the year, maybe a, a a couple of months ago, he said he was working on it mm. and he was hoping to get it done by the end of the year. Uh -huh. And now he's not going to get it done by the end of the year. And there's the shocked. general yeah, shocked. I, I am. There's a general assumption that 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 book is never going to get finished. Oh, it's, there's there's. A lot of he fans will, have reconciled themselves to his estate publishing. Die, he will die, and Brandon Sanderson will finish it. Of course, he could just be really, really evil and take it with him. He's worked on some of it. <laughs> no, I mean, literally, it's like the... the, the oh, he buried with it? <laughs> buried with it. 
fans would fans would be digging up the coffin. It is it is and that's unfortunate. But but you when you look you look at the the fact that this you know, this book series got a very expensive and for a lot of fans for a long time pretty faithful adaptation. Yeah. And then you get to the end and the final season and um it, uh, polarizing at the least, I, I would say is, is safe. Uh, yeah, I'd um, say po- I'd say little, that's little a, polarizing. Good, a good way to characterize it. The thing, the thing is, that, the ending see, and, that, and that goes back bad. to that whole. That kind of goes back to that whole being faithful to the adaptation, mm. because you know, like I said, you know, getting Lovecraft's voice in these extra characters that we're adding. Well, if if I'm Benioff and Wise and I'm doing Game of Thrones and I've got four or five, six, seven seasons now where I've been using George R. R. Martin as my source material, then you would think you have a handle on Martin's voice for the books, for the material that's that's not there. Now we have to go out on our own. The 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 thing the thing is that you have to be able to maintain that continuity of voice. Well, and and at the same time, do it in. I, I have a personal pet theory about this, mm-hmm. um, and that is they didn't have enough time. And I don't necessarily mean the amount of time it took them to produce the show. I mean the amount of episodes they were doing it in. I I can see that. And I yeah. think that honestly, if they had had maybe six more episodes, because it feels like the biggest. And I'm not a huge Game of Thrones fan, guys. I mean, I'm just—it's just not. I mean, I think it's a—I think it's an interesting show. I think it's well crafted. Do you uh, think the truncated nature of season eight was because they've got a Netflix deal, they got the Star Wars thing? Let's get it done and get it over with. It was an incredibly expensive. I honestly think it was money. It was so expensive to make that show. You don't. I mean, we we think about a lot of these these shows that have fairly reasonably bud, big budgets. It had a massive episode budget. Yeah. And that is, it doesn't matter how popular or, you know, how much Game of Thrones, how many Game of how many Game of Thrones dolls do you own? How many Game of Thrones clothing items? I mean, it's, there's the merchandising options for things like that. Yeah. It's not Star Wars. It's not Star Trek. It's not Doctor no. Who. It's not any of these things where you have... these. Certainly there's Game of Thrones stuff. Yeah, but there's, it's, there's merch. But there's not there's not merch on the same scale. It's a different... So, I mean, I'm, I've always... I'm, I love that we're getting these shows. But the return on the investment... I'm not entirely sure the math works yeah. always. Speaking of merch, I can I can I can do that now. Yeah. Um, we have negotiated a discount uh, over at superherostuff.com for your merch. If you want to get anything over there, use the promo code sci-fi for me ten. You get a ten percent discount over at superherostuff.com. All right. So. Um, What's what's Robert saying? Well, see, and that's the other thing too. Um, uh, you know, Robert points out Game of Thrones felt like it got too female centric. When you're adapting something, you talk about Sandman being a product of the '80s. Mm-hmm. And it feels very much the the audio feels like a product of the '80s. How much of a responsibility is there? 
to avoid modern quote-unquote sensibilities of whatever time you're in versus it depends. the it, story. I suppose it depends on what it is. I, I, I would, I would, I don't know. I necessarily agree with Robert there because Game of Thrones is a fantasy series. It's not medieval times. It's not. It's. It is certainly influenced. There's no question. It's influenced by medieval. It's well. It's influenced by medieval history, but it's not medieval history. It's a fantasy series. There were no dragons in medieval right. Europe. Yeah, but if you, you know, but you have reference, you have references. yeah, but but the, the, but at the same time, you're not necessarily you. There were some. There are a lot of very strong female characters in the books themselves. So I think again, I think that they ended up, they crammed too much into that final season. Yeah. And I think they actually, and they ended up doing all the characters a disservice. And okay, it was always going to end in a bloodbath. The idea that Game of you, the, the idea, the fact that anybody was left standing at the end of a Game of Thrones is kind of a minor miracle because I was expecting to be like, and they all died. Desolation across the land. Yeah, scorched and, earth. And like one random person going. I'm going back to the wall. Now. Exactly, yeah. it's like one guy, and and that would have been a perfect. I would have been like, yeah, okay, makes sense to me. But I think that I think that you run into the question of if you have a story that is tied to a specific time and a place. So, for example, um, if you have a horror film or a science fiction, well, if you, okay, it, uh, science fiction, it's tough because it. If you have a if you have a science fiction film set in the 1800s. You've got some very specific things to deal with. That's a very narrow band here. But say you have, say you have a horror film set in the in the eighteen uh, hundreds, a Jack the Ripper, sure film or, or something like that. Jack the Ripper is a demon, whatever it is. Um, if you want to convince people that it's the eighteen hundreds, there's certain tropes you have to fall into. They don't necessarily have to be historically accurate. They they have to, they have to be. Relatable within the horror tropes sandbox. Yeah, but you also have to, uh, you with a, with something like that because we don't. I mean, okay, if you want to have an international audience, you want it to be historically accurate. But if you're not, if you're just looking at an American audience, 1800s England, our knowledge, the vast majority of the movie audience is this box, right? Yeah. Um, if you if you want you know if you want to sell tickets in the UK, your box better be this big. Right, because they that's it's a it's their own history. They know that better than we do, right? Right. So that's how this works. Same thing with our own history, right? Coming across. So you you sit there and you figure out what are the things that have to be in there, but you don't necessarily. You're not going to have a character who's coming in and using 20th century or 21st century slang, unless they're a time traveler. They better be. That said, there was a TV series. Somebody somebody help me out here. The TV series. It was an adaptation. It was it was about a writer, and they used modern language for it. Um, female writer in the eighteen hundreds. Oh, I'm drawing a blank Emily here. Dickinson. Was it Dickinson? Was it? I don't know. I think it might have been. But anyway, anyway the and but that was the premise of the show. That was the conceit of the show. Is here's the here's the world we're living in, but we're going to give these characters modern. They all talk like that, right? Right. And so it's. That's the gimmick of the show. That's their thing. So it either why would you do that? I don't know, but that was their and and the thing is, it either works or it doesn't. And and I haven't watched the show. I can't speak to whether it's worked. I don't. I didn't necessarily follow it, so I can't tell you what audiences thought about it. But but that uh -huh. was that was their thing. Okay, yeah. and so it either works or it doesn't. 
The challenge for adapting a novel that way, though, uh, or a comic book to say the film, is that we've we've already got that. We've got the voice of that character, you know. And if the voice of the character is radically different in t- the TV show or in the movie, it's not going to feel faithful to the character, and the audience is going to sit there and go, "Well, that's not Detective So and So. That's not Captain So and So." You know, that doesn't feel like them. Dickinson is on Apple TV Plus. Okay, there you go. And it's Haley Steinfeld is. Oh yeah, Haley mm-hmm. yeah. Okay, so right. I guess it was a, it was a it was a thing that you know I, I remember seeing ads for it, yeah. but I haven't watched the show, so I can't speak to it. Um. Excuse me. the The thing the thing that gets me on on adaptations is when you take liberties. Which you have to. Which you have to. I mean, you you talk about the Marvel the Marvel stuff. Oh sure. Um, sometimes you can take too many liberties because and, and and this goes both ways. This flips. I mean, Marvel Marvel is kind of a unique situation because at the time all of these movies are coming out with Tony Stark and Thor Odinson and Bruce Banner as the Hulk. And 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 uh, Natasha Romanoff is Black Widow, and Steve Rogers is Captain America. In the comic books, none of them were there. Yeah, you, know, you had Riri Williams and 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 uh, um, Sam. Uh, Sam was you know the Falcon, Sam Wilson. Sam mm-hmm. Wilson, yes, was mm-hmm. was the new Captain America, and you had uh, Amadeus Cho was the Hulk. And you had Jane Foster was Thor, and all of a sudden everything was different. So you go to the movies, and then you come in, you talk about having the characters' voices, and you go into the comic books, and you're like, oh, wait a minute. These but there's, aren't even the same but there's also another wrinkle there is because the, the uh, Marvel Cinematic Universe isn't really an adaptation of the 616 universe, it's an adaptation of the Ultimate Universe, which is a completely different beast. Mostly. It's not. It's not an exact. Adaptation. No, of course. Well, that's it, and, and it couldn't be. But the thing is, is that it's mostly. It is mostly an adaptation of a complete of not even the main continuity. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that made it good fertile ground for moving to film is a that the reason the ultimate line existed was to tell fresh new versions of some of the classic stories of these characters. And when it worked really well, and it did with Ultimate Spider-Man, yeah. that got a ton of praise. And Miles Morales came out of Ultimate Spider-Man and he was a, as a, a character who has become extremely popular. Um, and But there hasn't been a lot of the Ultimate line that had that kind of and lasting power of Ultimate Spider-Man and Miles and Morales. I would submit that Miles Morales was a popular character because he was well written. Oh, no argument. Not not in, in but, today in today's climate though, that wouldn't be the case. But it was also well, but at the same time, uh, and I would argue that, but at the same time it was also controversial because when cuz they killed off Peter Parker. Right. And this was a teenage Peter Parker. This wasn't an adult Peter Parker. This was a teen because he's a teenager, and it was all about being a teenager. It was it was the fact that written, the character was written as a relatable teenager, and it wasn't written down to teenage and down. That's, that's a you know 
condescending. Often teenagers are extremely yeah. bright. Um, so writing down, to teen, you know, it's a dumb thing to say. But it also wasn't written over the heads. Uh, so you could, the younger audiences could appreciate it. Uh, adult audiences could appreciate it. it. It was very, it was incredibly well done. But the larger Ultimate Universe had the X-Men and the Fantastic Four. And they were enabled to play with some things in there. Wolverine is a very different character in the Ultimate. Uh, and and Reed Richards becomes a villain, and he's an interesting villain. And it's kind of like you, know, you could play with these things and make these big changes. It's a radically different universe than Six One Six, so you could actually kill off Peter Parker and make the, make it stick for a while, comic book yeah. death. But then you, when you have a character like Miles Morales come along, um, he becomes something that DC does a lot of legacy characters, the next generation, the first Flash, the second Flash, how many different Green Lanterns, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so <clears throat> you can have this character who's also dealing with the fact that he's not Peter Parker's Spider-Man. He's his own Spider-Man, figuring out what that means. And I think the character works... well done. Yeah, and the character works well in addition because he's not black Peter Parker. No, no, he's it, not. Black he's his own character. Mm-hmm. He's got his own history, background. Everything is different about him, except he's a teenager trying to figure things out. However, what you also find is, with the exception of bringing over the S- Sam Jackson version of Nick Fury, mm. which Junior, <laughs> yeah, um, which came over from the Ultimate line. Um, very li- few of the Ultimate characters actually stuck around. They sur- the, the Ultimate universe crashed and burned, and, it bur- and when I mean burned, it's like gone. Well, they destroyed 616 as well. That's gone too. They've destroyed a few universes over time. But very you few... See, the thing about it is though, 616 has always been there until, what, three... How many years ago? Three, four years yeah. ago when they when they destroyed all they of it? They broke it all. What yeah. was it? Was it Secret Wars? Um, did it? What was the, the Civil War Two or the Doom? I don't know, whatever. The, yeah, we're Doom One. Event um, of the event of the of the time, or at least you know, um, at least it was an interesting way to destroy the universe. The because you have to, after a while. How are we destroying the universe this week? Um, but you Let's but just throw a dart. <laughs> oh, sandworms. <laughs> right. <laughs> well, you know it's a Dune tie-in, um, but. Uh, there were there just weren't that many characters who survived the ultimate line basically going away, um, and you look at you know the ones that did, and and it's because they were extremely well written characters. So you can end up with, but because it's a character that only has a limited presence in the main continuity, mm-hmm. you can do a you can do an animated film and tell an origin story that still feels fresh because a lot of audiences don't know, necessarily know him. Right. And you end up with a, and then you, you, you make a really good movie and then people are like, when's the sequel coming out? Yeah. Yeah. You know, because and a lot of people are asking that question because it's, you know, and, and he's a, he's an engaging character, not to mention it's a very clever script and the artwork. Well, the art style key. is so visually yeah, we interesting. We talked about this before. Story, story, story. Yeah, sure. That that is the the key to everything. Your characters have to be good, well written, well crafted, well developed, and that's, they have to they have to, you know, play in a story that works. But and when you run into an adaptation issue, is that some of these characters you can spend a hundred pages with them in the book to know why this villain 
is doing what they're doing, and yet you've got five minutes to sell that to an audience. So you end up with a more generic villain. You end up with, oh, so Ar Artemis Fowl, okay? Big, big mm -hmm. book 15 years ago. Series that people have been asking for for a couple of decades, basically. It was a popular series back when I was a book dealer. So it's, you know, those are the 90s kids. Yeah. Uh, and and people, people have been clamoring for it. And it gets Kenneth Branagh as a director. Guy with a track record. He's made a few films. Some of them are, you know, some are better than others. But he's got, he's got a track record. Um, nobody liked this movie. And the primary complaint is, you know, Artemis Fowl is a villain, right? Yeah. He's an evil child. Well, and, and that goes back to understanding your source material. Well, but Brana sits there and says their goal was, and they clearly failed. Spoiler alert. Sorry, if you haven't seen the film. Um, the goal was to make you care about the character instead of just having this child villain it's this young this young person villain mm. who you who you might have a hard time having sympathy for and relating to and so the idea was the idea was is that you 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 make get him sympathetic make him way. sympathetic and then you make him worse over time and then because of the there's an arc to the stories where basically he starts off as a villain and by the time it's done he's not a hero he's less villainous mm. Um, he is uh, chaotic evil, or no, I'm sorry, chaotic neutral, at best. But 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 the thing is, is that they're not going to get another film. Yeah. They're they're going to have to wait until enough time has passed that we can make a new version of this. It's kind of like John Carter. Yeah, and I think that um, which is an example of something that with the it was it was less the adaptation of the work. Which could have used some improvement. I mean, there's places thought, it could have. I thought it was pretty good, but given, it was a, given what it was. It, given what it was, um, and I think that it it enabled the audience to get enough of the idea and who the characters were, um, without sacrificing um, critical story things that that hurt the adaptation. Mm -hmm. I think you know, for coming back to Dune. There's a lot of simplification of character in the Lynch version. There's a lot of simplification simplification of character in the Sci-Fi Channel versions. But yeah, you've got to consolidate certain. Even though they had, one. they had you know, twice as much, more than twice as much time to tell the story, yeah. and um, and they they were able to do a lot more with it. But at the same time, um, they still managed to lose a fair amount. But they lost things that. I'm not sure how they're going to do in the new version either. I mean, you, ecology is an important part of the novel. How much time can you spend with that on screen before it's... But here's, here's the class on the ecology of Arrakis. You know, I mean, it's, you have to engage the audience and... and well, you've got, to, you've got to do it in, in pieces of the dialogue, but sure. you, have to, you have to seed it in throughout... And they have a certain they have a certain way to do it because Paul is Paul Atreides is your viewpoint character, yeah. and so he's but he's already studied some of the planets. So when he gets there, you know, um, you know, there's the 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 natives, Leit Kynes, uh, the the household staff, 
are going to be able to sit there and provide some of that in exposition. It's going to be, you know. Yeah. And so you're going to have some opportunities for that. But you also miss out on, you know, the, the, the Sadakar, the Imperial troops, are supposed to be the greatest fighters in the, in, in the universe. There's, there's a, these are the shock troops from hell. These are the ones that, you know, do what, we, do what the Emperor says or he'll send in the Sadakar. And they sit there and go, yes, sir. Because, you know... Well, and you can do that with some shorthand, depending on the reactions. Sure, but that's one of the things that really fell very, very short in the Lynch adaptation, is that you weren't afraid of these characters. It didn't, you know, there's... There's a certain amount of, of things that you, you lose in storytelling when it comes time for the big climax fight scenes between the Fremen and the Sadakar, spoiler alert for Dune, um, that you have to believe that the fact that, you know, these desert nomads are fighting the greatest warriors in the universe and they, ex- and they think they're going to win is crazy. To, to the people at you know, the Emperor's Court. They're like, you know, these savages are coming. It's like, oh, wait, what? <laughs> we're, getting, we're getting annihilated by a bunch of, you know, uh, desert people? Yes, that's the point. I mean, it's it, so some of this stuff has to be in there to, to have the story have the impact. And that, unfortunately, is things like you don't get from the lunch. And I honestly don't think you got it in the Sci-Fi Channel miniseries either. Well, there are certain things that get, you know, certain things that fall by the wayside because... Again, you only have a certain amount of time mm-hmm. to tell the main thrust of sure. the story. And and depending on how many of the side stories and the B stories and the back stories... Oh, yeah, because Doom's got, Doom's got a few. Yeah, so you're going to have to pick and choose. And uh, Denny Villeneuve is going to have to pick and choose just the way, same way Lynch did or Sci-Fi. Well, did. sure, and if he, if, 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 I think that if he gets the two... Th- critical through lines there uh paul and lady jessica if you can take those two stories through because while the different novels have different focal points in terms of the story in the first one you have basically paul and his mother are so critical their storylines are so critical to what's going on Mm -hmm. um and jessica provides um, some necessary backstory to the to the world the problem they could run into is if they rely too much on the Bene Gesserit TV series. Oh yeah, that, that, that that's a real real risk. Gaps. I was like, no, wait a minute. It's then you're going to run into the same problem that the Star Wars sequel trilogy has had, where we're not going to explain it here. But if you read this comic book, yeah. it fills in this. And, and if it's... you read this book, and if you play this video game, and if you go over here and you do this, and you go here and do this. I don't want to do that. I don't right. want to have to do homework. Well, in order and to enjoy the and story. I think Star Wars has the Dune has an advantage over Star Wars, in that while it is an incredibly influential science fiction novel and it has many many fans, for the wider viewing audience, unless they saw the Lynch version, mm. unless they saw the Sci Fi Channel miniseries, um, and considering. How movie going works right well right now. I mean, when when it comes usually, out, usually, how when it comes out, yeah. um, the viewing audience, what what people have been, what people are looking for in this like a science fiction film, um, is different than it was both of those periods when those things came out. So I mean, it's it's a whole. It's I think it's really hard to compare in terms of what the audience expectations are going to be. Except for a lot of them, it's going to be brand new ground. Yeah. And so your trick is going to be telling the story. You have, you have another trick. 
you got another another ball you got to get juggled in the air, which is you have to tell the story for a new audience. But also that story for the fans, so the people who the reason you're making the movie is because you're a fan, and you want to give you want to make sure that their fans, you know, the the other fans uh, can see what you know how much you love it too, and 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 give you the pass when you go. Yeah, I can see why they cut that. <laughs> yeah, I can see why that character... Yeah. That, that character is a composite of three other characters. Okay, I get it now. Because, well, you know, you're going yeah, out... It's only so much real estate. Yeah, you only have so much that you can do. Yeah. So, And there's only so much that we can do uh, when we when we get to this We point. have a and lot of things, other stuff that we could we, talk about for could, adaptations. We could go on for a while, but we won't tonight. No. We will uh, wrap that up there and uh, invite everyone, if you are new to the channel, to hit the subscribe button and hit the bell. Apparently, from looking at the statistics, there are only 9.6% of our subscribers who have notifications turned on. So you're missing out on a lot of content because we're putting stuff out pretty much almost every day right now. And that includes the Comic-Con uh, updates. Uh, we've got Live from the Bunker Monday through Thursday at noon. We've got this show. We've got Triple Bites tomorrow night. We have Deep Space Mines on Friday. And that's a special episode. I'm, I, I will, well, I'll promote it here because we are going to have uh, Dan Dickholtz, former contributor of Starlog Magazine, as well as uh, John Atkin and Stan Wu, who are the makers of Yorktown, A Time to Heal, which is a Star Trek fan film that was shot in 1987 and is just now getting finished, and it features... George Takei as Sulu. It mm -hmm. is the first fan film because originally everybody thought the Phase Two right, yeah. Voyages was the first fan film to have people from the show, mm -hmm. but it wasn't. There's this one that nobody knew about because it never got finished until now. So we're going to talk to those guys about it cool. Friday night on Deep Space Mind. So uh, we look forward to that. And uh, you guys just had episode 50 of Tardis Sauce, talking about Doctor Who. That's so. right. And we'll have another two weeks. Yeah. So we're just we're just cranking out the content. So you need to have your notifications turned on, have the subscription done there, because YouTube keeps kicking people off and putting people back, and it's, it's that. So... Uh, so anyway, yeah, there's that. Thank you, all of you that were in the chat, giving us your comments and thoughts. Appreciate and, it. And uh, if you're watching this in replay, uh, leave us a comment. Let us know what you thought. Hit the little thumbs up like thing. Let us there. know what your favorite and worst, least favorite adaptations are. Yes. That could be some. That could be some fun stuff to discuss too. And you could also send us an email h two o at sci fi for me dot com. And if you would like a sticker. I'll, I'll throw that up there, uh, there you in go. front of the camera. If sticker, you can send us a self-addressed stamp envelope, 1503 Main Street, number 305, Grandview, Missouri, 64030, and we will send you a sticker. There you you go. can show your support, like like I do. I've got I've got a sticker on the on the back of my on the back of my phone there. You can see right there, um, that there. All right, that's gonna do it for us. Thanks very much for watching. Uh, those of you who are listening to this as a podcast, thanks for listening. You can join us live Monday night at 8 o'clock on Sci-Fi for Me TV. 
dish. Yeah, when, when all the machines work. All right. Thanks, everybody. Good night. Thank you. Copyright 2020 by Flaming Dog Media, LLC. All rights reserved. No portion of this program may be retransmitted without the express written consent of Flaming Dog Media.